Welcome to the PhD in Parenting Podcast. The podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. In last week's episode, we talked about some of our concerns and considerations as parents for the upcoming school year. Today, we want to address the other side of things, which is our preparation as higher education specialists and professionals for the upcoming semester. And so I have some interesting news that I want to share, but um, you did. we also have a special guest tonight. That's right, Erin. The semester is about to begin, and since you're the only professor between us, we thought it would be fun to bring on another guest who can share their experience and talk a little bit more about how, what they're going through um, with preparing for the new school year while also pre- preparing for a new semester. So we are thrilled to welcome Ashley Whitmore to our show. Ashley is a former fellow grad student from Wayne State, and she is also a mother of two, a scholar, and um, an educator. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you, guys. I'm so excited to be talking with you guys. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, To start us off, why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey as a scholar and an educator? What is your academic background? Where are you now? And how did you end up there? Sure. Um, So like you guys, I have my PhD in English, which I received in 2015. Um, Since then, I've been working as a lecturer in composition and rhetoric at the University of Michigan in Dearborn. I've been there for five years. I've really liked it. After I got my PhD, it was pretty clear to me that I was not open to moving out of the area. I had a pretty rootless childhood. I was a military brat. And after staying in the same spot, going to school for so long, um, we just weren't interested in moving at all. I was married at that time. Um, my daughter had, or- my first daughter had already been born. So we weren't looking outside of the area at all. So I've been teaching at uh, U of M Dearborn for about five years and have really liked it. That's awesome. I totally hear you on um, not wanting to move out of the area. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, We'll definitely return to some of the aspects of this throughout the show. But to give our listeners a sense of what you're juggling, tell us a little bit more about your maternal journal, if there's more to say. Uh, Like me, you had your first child while, while we were all in grad school. What was that like for you? And how have things progressed from when you first became a mother? Yeah, I had my first daughter in 2013. So that was about two years before I um, defended. I had already passed my perspective. So I was done with coursework um, and was really just kind of doing my own thing, which was planned. I think like you guys had talked about in your first episode or so, I thought that at least while being pregnant and then after having a baby, I would just be writing and I would have all of this time to be focused on the computer and uh, reading but that was not the case. <laughs> Pretty much uh, when I was pregnant, all I could really think about was being pregnant. <laughs> and that's pretty much all I read about and um, really what I was studying. So it definitely slowed things down. It was hard for me to focus. It was a good time, though, in my life to be pregnant. Like I said, I didn't want to do it during the coursework. I just wasn't comfortable with that idea. I wanted to be done with my QEs, my prospectus. So I had her, I think I had her about a little less than a year after I um, had my prospectus exam. And then after she was born, it took me two years to finish my dissertation. After she was born, she was born about a month early. So there were feeding issues um, where we were really sleep deprived. I was on the schedule of 
attempting to nurse for 20 minutes and then supplementing and then pumping for another 20 minutes, doing that every two hours around the clock. That sounds yeah. exhausting. And I kind of remember you mentioning that, but it just to think about that now just sounds absolutely exhausting to me. It was horrible. I don't even remember if we did that for a week or if it was like six months. It doesn't matter. It pretty much just wiped me out to the point where it was really, really hard to focus on writing. And it also made me have to completely redo the way I was working. Before that point, I was a night owl and I would sit in my office and probably start writing around, I don't know, nine o'clock at night and get a good, good thing going until maybe like two in the morning or so. Yeah. That was like from my undergrad days. And yet you can't do that with a baby or I couldn't do it with a two hour, every two hour feeding schedule. So that was difficult. And it was also hard for me to find those moments during the day with her where if she was sleeping, that I would run to the computer and write. That just wasn't really happening very, very much at all. It was funny. I was um, going through some old emails, just trying to remember where I was in my dissertation when she was born. And then I saw an email, Aaron, that I had written to you maybe like three months after she was born, where I was just asking you a question about something from my dissertation. And then you responded and you're like, so what'd you, what did you think? What'd you figure out? And I was like, I completely forgot I ever wrote you that email. And I don't think <laughs> I ever went back to that passage again. That is so relatable. But I think it's really good that you're bringing up this narrative because I think for some people like on the outside looking in, uh, this can all look so easy and seamless because I was at your defense as well as Judith's and you both just seem so polished and put together. And I was like, wow, because I was still a long time coming after you both. And it just seemed like this is amazing work. It's so great. And to be fair, I even downloaded both of your dissertations as I was still trying to plot away on mine. And so it's interesting to share these narratives about working as women in academia, because I don't think everyone is always aware of these, you know, I never would have known listening in on either of your defenses that there was all this going on behind the scenes. And I don't think other people would have known that as well. That's nice to hear. (laughs) Because yeah, it definitely I don't think I've ever felt polished in my life. Um, And definitely not with yeah, this baby that was attached to me for, you know, the year, two years going up to the dissertation. Um, I don't know if you guys have talked yet about imposter syndrome at all, but suffer highly from that where never felt like I was with the others in our cohort or in our program. Um, And then after having the baby, even though we did have other people in that program who had babies, it did make me feel even less a part of the academic world. And I remember writing the emails to my committee members um, after I had her. You know, at that point, I was out of classes, so I wasn't really down on campus a lot. I think I'd also stopped teaching maybe for a semester or a year at that point. Um, So my main advisor was very super family friendly, really positive, um, really great. So when I emailed her and told her about the birth, she was like, congratulations, don't stress out, don't worry, don't rush anything. This is a really singular, important moment in your life. And you should take this time and enjoy it because you're not going to get it back. And then with the other (laughs) members, I, um, you know, still got congratulations. But I also remember in those emails being like, don't worry, I am focused. I have family help. I will, I will get this done. And not, I'm just feeling like a little bit more self-conscious, I guess, about myself thinking if they're going to see me more now as a mother over an academic. Okay. 
So yes, I was a little bit more self-conscious in emailing um, the other members of my committee who I also was not as close to um, and delivering the news and even like sharing pictures. I remember picking pictures that weren't as sentimental even to show them, which is so silly. I know for one, I remember to include a cat in it, wanting to make sure that my committee still saw me as an academic, a scholar, someone who was serious and not just someone who was now playing mom. And obviously I wasn't playing mom, but someone who only had that one role. Self-conscious about that. But after that first year, I think things started to roll a little bit, especially as my daughter was getting older and I started thinking about when to add my second child. I didn't want to do it until I was done with my dissertation. Just because I, you know, time management was never my friend. I didn't want to add a second child. So I always say that like the arrival of my first daughter both sped me up and slowed me down a little bit. It kind of centered me, made me really think about what I was doing. Um, that's probably really when I made my decision that we weren't moving because I now had this child. I myself am an only child and I felt guilty taking my parents' grandchild away from them if we are moving. So she also, the arrival of my first daughter also made me make sure I got my stuff done so I could move on to the next stage of our lives. So my second daughter was born a year after I defended um, in 2016. So again, she was planned, but things didn't go quite as planned. So she came during the middle of a semester when I was teaching. Um, My first daughter was born in the summer My second daughter was born in October, Um, so I was teaching at U of M at the time and didn't really know how to go about thinking about like maternity leave. I'm a lecturer there, so I do have have health benefits and an office, so it's a really, it's a much better gig than an adjunct, but still we always feel a little bit unsure. So I had asked for online classes. I was granted online classes. I should just not have taught that semester. It was silly of me to think that I could have, I think I was teaching two or three classes, I can't remember, um, when she was born and probably not do a great job of those classes. That seems Um, like a lot to juggle. Yeah, it was was a silly thing to do. But again, I think I was just trying to prove that I could do it. I was thinking um, at that time, my first daughter was in uh, daycare, so she wasn't home with me. Um, so it seemed almost indulgent, I guess, to to be at home alone with a baby and not be working since that was my first one I was working on my dissertation. I've heard um, similar threads from both Judith and myself and this kind of feeling like we have to be the super student, super mom, put it all together. But any other time anyone would have gone through this major physical ordeal, no one in their right mind would ask them to go and teach three classes. But I've heard this um, sentiment from other working mothers, like we have to prove that we're the best. And that was definitely something that I felt strongly about as well. Like, no, I can do this. But Ashley, that is a ton to be taking on. Yeah. And looking back on it again, I'm like, I would never um, tell someone to do that or advise someone to do that. But, you know, your best advice is never given to yourself. And even (laughs) in the the next semester, the winter semester, I was still teaching online. And I think it went better. But also, I don't remember those classes at all. I barely remember that time. My second daughter also had different kind of feeding issues where she was nursing, but she never took a bottle for the entire year. So 
I just never left her anywhere because she she ate a lot. <laughs> and it just felt like it was maybe having that October baby in Michigan where the winters are dreary and long, teaching from home. So I never had really an excuse to leave her again, feeding from me around the clock where it just felt like I was never <laughs> leaving the house, and never left her. But then after the year, she was good. <laughs> she could finally move on to something else. So a couple at least. And at that point, too, like I said, I was teaching a lot, but my, uh, I think at that point, try to remember if I went to a conference that year, I might have. After my dissertation, my academic life kind of zest for it, you know, kind of went away a little bit um, when these two kids popped up. And my time management skills and lack thereof also really came into focus where I had to start learning. I've been learning for like these last three years how to juggle parenting them and developing my courses, teaching the classes and teaching the way that I want to teach and parenting the way that I want to parent. Yeah, I feel like that's a long-term project probably for all of us in different ways. Um, I think that, you know, even for some, for me, and I've talked about this before, um, for me, part of the reason that I that I chose the career that I did choose was that I wanted something that was more nine to five, where it was easier mm-hmm. for me to sort of have that separate, clear separation. Yes, um, because I really did start. I really did struggle with and did not enjoy sort of the constant pressure that there weren't like clear boundaries and that you were always sort of like thinking about um, Mm -hmm. grading or, you know, whatever you were, whatever text you were teaching the next week, you would read over the weekend or whatever. I think the time management is a, is a huge challenge. And then when you have a career that is so flexible in terms of when you do things, it just requires so much more like self-discipline and organization than I think other careers do. So I could totally understand that that's a process that's been going on for, um, for longer than, you know, just a couple months after baby is born. Yeah. So what are you, um, are you still teaching mostly online or have you gone back in the classroom? What's the, what does that look like for you now? Yeah. So after that first year, I went back into the classroom U of M had a couple, they have hybrid classes where it's about it's two hours in the classroom plus an hour online for a course. So I've taught a couple of those. Um, but yeah, it was mostly mostly in person at that point. So I like teaching online. Um, you know, we had talked, I think you guys had talked too about that our grad program focused a lot about delivering and developing content for online um, delivery at least. And uh, I had taken an online certification or online teaching certification about three years ago. So I had always felt pretty comfortable teaching online. And most of my, I was really using still, you know, blogs and our um, learning management system a lot to deliver the content. But yeah, mostly in-person teaching still. Okay. And how's that, what's that looking like now? So we, I, I want um, to kind of start thinking a little bit about the, you know, the topic of the episode or the, the, the issue that we've been discussing for a couple episodes now, um, the, the upcoming semester. Um, do you know what your fall semester is going to look like? Do you know what the assignments are um, or what your, what your teaching assignments are? I mean, and sort of like, has your school made any announcements in terms of like what their offerings are going to be? Yeah. So half and half. 
my university's plan is online. Majority of the classes okay. are going to be taught online for the fall. Um, a couple of labs or like senior um, projects would be taught in person, but all of the classes that I'm teaching are going to be online classes. Even the classes that they're teaching in person after Thanksgiving go to online. So that was told to us, I believe, maybe like the end of May or so this year. At that point, I had already signed my contract for the fall. So I'd already had my semesters or my own courses. But since that, since the change to online classes, the courses and the enrollment have just been going crazy. Things are changing constantly. Where my my schedule has changed now probably twice this summer to the point where we start classes on September 1st and I'm still like not 100% sure what I'm teaching. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that makes it really hard to plan because I don't want to sink a bunch of time and effort into developing all this material again for an online course if I'm not going to teach it. So you don't even know what classes you're going to teach or what times? No, so we're all, it's not going to be synchronous no matter what. Um, They're pretty clear they want all asynchronous delivery. So the time doesn't quite matter. And I have pretty basic classes, but I've had things be taken away. Um, I've had a class added maybe two or three weeks ago. The issue is, again, money. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, They want to make sure that a lot of these classes are quite full and kind of, I think, teach a smaller amount of very full, a small amount of classes, but all those classes um, have reached their capacity. Something about the semester makes it feel like we have to really like blow their sets off with our online content. Like, I don't know, like this is, this is it, right? Like this is these students, like we've all had like an awful summer. Um, we really need to be inspired again. We have really it's a crazy um, semester to be teaching. We have COVID-19. It's an election year. Um, We're going to be coming off this summer where all of these social racial injustices have finally been brought to light. Um, You know, these are all things that in a humanities course are really important, relevant topics um, and deep issues to bring into the classroom. And then when you're in the online classroom, you have to really think about your delivery of those topics or your discussion, your analysis, your assignments, and give them that really careful pedagogical and critical consideration of how you're going to deliver that content and discuss that content if you're not in a classroom with a give and take. So that stuff takes time. And I want to make sure that I give it that time. And it's just been, I guess, disheartening so far, um, or it was disheartening at least you know a month ago to think about putting all that time and effort into a course just to have it be canceled. I think you're touching on so many important issues. Um, A lot of our listeners and I myself have worked in a part-time faculty role. And this is just one of those situations where I think the pandemic has made it even more exacerbated. But the sense of as someone who is a lecturer or part-time faculty or an adjunct faculty member, there's like none of that sort of like I know what I have every year and from year mm-hmm. to year. And people just outside of the field, I don't think, understand that. And we have to, I have to make those calls now to let people know. And I feel so awful because I'm thinking this person is probably, depending on this contract, 
Uh, we can all look at the numbers and our numbers have been crazy all over the place, up and down. <laughs> but I just, I can see your frustration. And then to speak your, to your point about teaching online, I've been doing that for about the last year as well. And so much of what I loved about the classroom, the face-to-face classroom is a kind of like disorganized, um, chaotic. I've been writing about Mm -hmm. rhizomes today, but like the rhizomatic quality of like how a conversation can move and grow in this like really unplanned way when you're face to face. And I think you're really smart in trying to consider how you can replicate that online because I feel like sometimes that sense of immediacy is missing, right? Especially when it's an asynchronous class. So you have people kind of responding to discussions all day and all night. And I try to make sure I get in and talk to everyone, but I feel like it doesn't always have that immediacy uh, the same way it would in a face-to-face classroom. So how do you, what, what have you been doing to try to make that work? The session boards can only do so much with that. You know, our LMS is Canvas, which yes. I feel like is really spreading. Um, and the discussion board is just like any other discussion board. There's nothing really that interesting or dynamic about it. And like you said, students can take their time. You don't have that immediacy. You don't have those kinds of slip-ups even that can sometimes make really interesting segues and conversations. And it's also very easy for students just to be like, yes, I agree. And not really (laughs) fully develop. So, you know, I've tried to do different things with video responses, like have students make videos about their responses or students use more um, visuals in their responses. Because, I don't know, something about looking at uh, photos, especially like in photojournalism or political cartoons, sometimes sparks a bit more of a debate when students actually have something concrete to point back to in their conversations. I have not really found a great way to do it yet. Um, I know a synchronous, well, I don't know. I've never taught any part of my online course in a synchronous sort of way. I saw a lot of um, other professors really struggling with that in the spring, um, moving their courses online and trying to hold these like synchronous Zoom meetings, which yeah, at no our good. university, they told us, don't even try to do that. Your students are completely stressed out. It's not worth doing. I would agree with that. The few like office hours or even little meetings I have with students on Zoom were pretty, I don't know, awful. <laughs> um yeah, we were told not to do that as well. Um, I scheduled one-on-ones when possible, but just the Zoom of trying to have 20 students and oh, we don't know what's going on in their lives right now. And exactly. if I'm stressed out, I'm sure they are too. But I love that idea of like incorporating the video response. Um, one thing that I like to do on my discussions now, which my students do not like, is there's a little button on Canvas that says, you can't see the other replies until you make your own. So there's a little less of that. I agree. Great point. They have to make their own original posts and points first. And people are like kind of mystified by that because, you know, they're used to that. Great point. I've tried to to um, make smaller groups online, which can be a headache in developing. But sometimes it works if you give group papers and at least then they have a smaller on Canvas. You can have like they can have their own discussion boards. And if maybe there's only like five students discussing the same thing as opposed to like 25 students, they might be more influenced to go a little bit more in depth with one another, especially if they're working to develop a paper or develop a thesis or an idea. Um, So sometimes that helps. I have a colleague that is, so he's not doing um, synchronous meetings or anything or lectures, but he is telling his students when he's recording his lectures on Zoom. So they're invited to those lectures. And that way, if there are questions that they want to ask or if they want to 
give some feedback while he's recording them, that can be synchronous. And then he would still post those recordings to um, the site. So all that's great. <laughs> uh, and I would really like to try that, but then that's going to kind of get into conflict a little bit with what else I'll be doing in the fall, which is a suddenly, I guess, being a second grade teacher and a preschool teacher to do that synchronous stuff means I need to do it during a reasonable time in the day when I'm also parenting and running school for my two kids. Are your girls not going back to school this fall? They're probably not going back to school this fall. Our um, school district has not yet released what they're going to do. Again, it's early August. School starts September 1st. Um, They have their board meeting this week. But a lot of districts around us right now are doing virtual only. That's what Um, I heard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, the last email we got from them said, you know, they had been developing a full in-person, a full virtual and a hybrid. So is it, is it, do you think it'll be up to the parents then to choose whatever they want for their kids? I thought Um, that maybe like a month ago, but the way um, the numbers have not really been going down too much around here and just Mm -hmm. based on the other schools in the the, um, area, I think I'm pretty sure they're going to do just a virtual to start with. So, and so you said you have a second grader and a preschooler then, yes? Yes. That's, so how is that, how does that impact what you're planning for your semester? I think you kind of alluded to that a little bit. Um, can you talk more about how you see yourself managing that workload in the fall? I'm um, really worried about it. <laughs> we are really, really lucky. <laughs> you know, I can stay home and teach online, which is what I was hoping was going to happen. Um, my husband will also be home. He's not in a hurry to go back to work and his work is not in a hurry to have anyone back. So he will be here for the most part. He might have to go in every once in a while, but for the most part, he'll be here through the end of the year. We also have, and some people might think this is lucky and some might not, our in-laws living with us right now. My in-laws living with us right now. Um, My husband's parents. So there are four adults in this household you would never know it by the way my kids um, are obsessed with me. <laughs> really? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. It's almost as if I'm just living with like kale or like broccoli. Like there is no, they don't care about anything that's not me. You would never know there's three other adults. They are never not touching me. I've had to put on like Barbie's clothes in the shower. They are always need to know exactly where I am at all times of the day. So I'm very lucky to have other adults in this household. My kids are not interested in those other adults adults in the household. In the spring, I was fully in charge of their schooling. My husband's job is one where a lot of his workday seems to consist of meetings and phone calls and like face-to-face, like Zoom meetings and those types of phone calls where he's like actively leading discussion. It's very rare for him to have like a couple of minutes to stop and do something. If he had to, then he could, but it was difficult. And my in-laws, I think could help. Um, They have some mobility issues and health issues as well, where like just going up and down the stairs is a little hard for them sometimes. And my daughter's off, uh, like where she was working was upstairs in her bedroom or she'll be working downstairs in the basement probably. So just, I feel bad making them go up and down the stairs or they can't really, I don't know, go ride their bikes with them or anything like that. So it just seemed like I became the default parent, um, the default like house manager, the default educator. 
So, you know, I was talking about this with my husband last night and we were just saying that we really have to sit down and think about every single thing that needs to be done in this house from educating the kids to cleaning, to shopping, to after schedules. Like you guys had talked about the mental load in that one episode, all of those little things and things that you can't even think of, try to think about them and just really try to plan out either deadlines for when they're going to get done or who's in charge of them. Because otherwise I'm going to just burn out by November for sure. So I'm happy to have online classes where I don't have to go in to um, go drive down the campus. But like I said, it makes it harder for me to have those those types of synchronous meetings, um, like virtual office hours. I definitely want to do virtual office hours for at a reasonable time. But I think I'm teaching, I'm teaching four or five classes um, because two of my classes are one credit classes. You know, it's still all the prep and everything else. So it's even if it is for an online class, I think more so where I'm like making sure I have to separate them. And I don't know, just it's a little bit harder of a class to lead online. This one credit class, it's a it's basically a writing studio class where I'm meeting with a small class and they're just bringing writing in from outside like their other classes and we go over it. But that actually uh, sounds really labor intensive for you, if I might say so. Um, for it an online like, class, it is. I feel like the tendency too when I'm teaching online is I like I really have to um, weigh this out. But it seems like I end up doing more comments and more feedback because I'm just so worried that they're not going to get what I'm saying. And then I'm like more announcements and more videos. And I feel like my students are probably like, oh my gosh, that's enough, you know, but I am just so nervous that it's not going to be clear. Like when I'm in class mm-hmm. and I can sit down next to them. So I'm like, okay, here's another video and here's a helpful, you know, helpful hint. And they probably like, we're good. One thing I tried, I tried to set up like standing office hours. I ended up just doing um, kind of like what I always did uh, as a GTA, which was by appointment only. So they could come to me because because the first couple of weeks during COVID, I was like, okay, guys, I'm going to be online every Monday from seven to eight. And I would log in and have my coffee and my papers and then no one would show up. So I found that it's a little better just to kind of give that little footnote like, okay, I'm available. You let me know when you want to meet. And so that way, if the meeting is supposed to go and they don't show up after 10 minutes, it's kind of just like regular office hours. I'm like, we'll try next time. So I I found that to be a little bit useful because the standing office hours seem to be kind of a bomb. That might just be for me though, you know? Yeah. No, I had no one really coming to my office hours when I was doing them either in the spring. I think I had had two students who maybe came to one and and I did the chat thing in Canvas a couple of times where at least then I could just have it open on my computer and look at it every once in a while and see if anyone showed up just to throw a question out there. Right. But Yeah, I mean, to have like those actual standing kind of times, I think is going to be too much when I have to do the second grade curriculum, um, which I'm not quite even sure what that's going to look like, how they're going to deliver the content. They said it's going to be different than it was in the spring. I don't really know how different it could possibly be. It's online. And then with my preschooler, uh, use that term kind of lightly, she'll be turning four she had zero interest in any sort of academic thing. As soon as I pulled out anything to her that looked like it might be learning, she was gone. Um, she, like her preschool had given us her name and it was um, laminated so she could trace it. And anytime I took it out, she was like, just gone. So 
I've heard from other parents who have like a school age child in the preschool, like, oh, the preschooler just wants to be like their older brother or sister and they'll sit there and do the work. Not mine. She was, she has no interest in it, but I don't want her to fall behind. So I still want to have some sort of just like our projects or whatever, just like one thing a day for her to do, which again means I need to plan that out, (laughs) make sure I have whatever crafts. I don't know if you guys try to buy crafts in the spring. It's funny the things that um, this pandemic made really difficult to buy. I had a hard time buying like washable paint for a while. I was like tracking down tie dye this summer. Yes, um, I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> we did that for for my daughter's birthday. We got some tie dye, and I had to go to multiple different stores because everybody was out. Apparently, that was like the big jam this summer. Yeah, it took me I think like a month to finally find some tie dye, and now I have yeah. a ton of it. But yeah, you know, just kind of planning all that stuff. And with my my second grader, she is definitely someone who who needs a schedule. She does really well with a schedule where what we found that worked in the fall or in the spring was, you know, we'd wake up, we would do something active in the morning, and then we could get most of her work done before lunchtime. Maybe like she would have one thing left to do after lunch, and then we'd have the rest of the day. So I'm hoping it's not going to be that much different. And then I just have to force myself to use help, to use my in-laws, to use, I don't know, there's really not anyone else to use because you're not allowed to see anybody. My mother's job right now, she's not working on Fridays. So she said that, you know, ship them over there. I've seen things. I don't know if you guys have seen this stuff about pods, homeschooling pods or whatever where I think you're meeting with a couple of other parents and sharing those duties of childcare and also just kind of running the academics for the day. Like maybe you have a couple of people in your pod. So I'd be curious to look into that. Um, I'm worried about the socialization aspect. I've realized, yeah, I mean, I realized today that my girls haven't seen any other kids except for like their baby cousin, maybe once. They haven't seen any kids since March. We... I've been really careful and my in-laws again they've had they have some um, health issues that we're being very careful about so we've been on lockdown and the think of them going pretty much the majority of this year without playing with other kids is devastating and I don't I don't want to do that to them so thinking through the pod situation and that would also then free up some time for me too because what I can't do is what I did in the spring which is pretty much be their full-time parent, which was intense because these kids are intense up to dinner time or so, have dinner with them, put them to bed, or my husband and I usually split. We do one-on-one and then try to cram my stuff, my work in from nine to whatever, because I can't work like that anymore, right? I'm not working the the nine to two o'clock thing anymore. That hasn't worked for me either. Yes. I'm too old and I'm too tired. Yeah. It's it's too tired. It's very tiring yeah. because you're already during the day trying to you're always you're constantly multitasking. You're always trying, you know, you're always checking your email. You're always looking if so, you know, if you said you had your Canvas chat open or whatever, mm-hmm. you're always kind of over there. Um, and then, you know, you're always then you've got to think about feeding them and you gotta think about the activities and, and there's just so much going on and that is that's just too draining, is what I it find. Is you know, I don't want to do a job, a bad job teaching my classes and I don't want to do a bad job parenting either. So that's right. 
that's like the real challenge this fall, I think, is that um, I'm afraid that in the process of not wanting to be bad at my job as a teacher and bad at my job as a parent, that other things are going to fall, like being a good friend or a good partner or taking care of like my physical health. I don't want those things to fall to the wayside, but that's like where I'm kind of, uh, where my head's at right now. I'm a little bit worried about those things. So it's going to force me to separate my days, I think, into the mornings maybe being for my kids and for the afternoons being for me. Because I too would like to be done working by a reasonable time. Like you're saying like that nine to five job, I can't make it nine to five, but if I could end it, um, you know, before the girls go to bed and maybe just have like one last email or something to do after they go to bed, that would be ideal. Um, Aaron, do you know what um, your, your college is planning for the fall? What's your semester going to look like? So this is an interesting time. Um, I did find out that I will be teaching in person. We have, yeah, we have a plan in place. Um, so I can kind of go through some of the bullet points. I should note that this is all still very fluid. We have like plan A and plan B or choice one and choice two. So far, we're planning for in fall, uh, in the fall to teach face to face. That means wearing masks at all times. That means that we'll have temperature screenings and checks for the students and the staff, as far as I know. We will have all of our public spaces closed, so that's a little unfortunate, but also, I think, a great necessity. So no cafeterias, no computer labs, no libraries. Um, Those spaces will all be closed to the public to avoid contamination. We will also be shifting, however, after Thanksgiving break, I guess the idea being that, you know, if people return home, there could be spread and transmission. So after Thanksgiving, we will be moving to online, but synchronous from what I hear. So that should be interesting because I have not yet taught a synchronous online course as well. I'm still sort of curious about what like the contingency plans are. Because what happens if I do have a student in my course that tests positive, do we then immediately shut everything down? Um, you know, this is something that you and I have spoke uh, spoken about a bit here, which is like, okay, so perhaps things do start up. Am I going to be in class for a week, for two weeks, uh, for the whole semester? I don't know. Contingent to this, you will both find this interesting. My children go to a small parochial school and they too are starting up. But I wonder if some of it is on this convenience issue, like, what you both are describing is this utter exhaustion, um, not being able to like self-care, maintain. So are we going back because it's safe or are we going back because it's a parochial school? And to be fair, a lot of people have already paid their tuition. So I wonder these things. Uh, Again, there's a whole laundry list of all the different things that are going to happen, separate lineups for the kids, uh, eating lunch in their own classroom, separate recess sessions for everyone, no large gatherings across different grades. But I don't think this has made me feel any better, to be honest. I've had a knot in my stomach all day just thinking about it because I don't want to get emotional. I may, but I have been doing my darndest to keep this family safe since March, right? As you both have as well, following all the rules, following the protocol. So I have really mixed emotions about this. Like you both said, I want my children to begin socializing again. My children all sort of tend to be a bit more on the introverted side and this space away from kids their own age, I think has made that maybe even more so. 
But I'm just, I'm really curious. I mean, I guess we could be pleasantly surprised. That's my like, what do they call it? Magical thinking side of me, right? Um, The radio, I was listening to a lot of radio driving this week and they were like, it's magical thinking, right? Like you just wish this away and it's all good. It was referring to some of the sporting events starting back up, like the Major League Baseball, things I don't really follow, but I was finding it very interesting because it relates to our kids, right? Like it's like this magical thinking that like, well, we're going to start school and everything's going to be back to normal with the exception of wearing masks and hand sanitizer. And I'm just like, I I don't know. Talk to me in a month and we'll see where we're at. You know what I mean? And the other scary thing for me is this is all like a couple of weeks away, really. It's just a couple. It's just, yeah, for us, it's the 25th. Um, We're supposed to start on the 25th, which I just haven't even heard from the schools, from the from the public schools themselves, but which I had to find out from the Parks and Rec Department that run the after school program. So I don't have a list of like things that I need to buy and all these things that and like and I think I mentioned this last episode, my daughter is changing schools. Um, I don't have a date for orientation yet. Um, all of those things. And it seems like it's, and, uh, Ashley, like you said, there's still school board meetings scheduled as well between now and the beginning of the school year. And there, the website of the school, when you, you know, I went there to find out what the first day of school was. And the only thing that's in the calendar is the school board meetings for the entire school year, which makes me very, (laughs) very, very nervous and very curious whether anything else is planned or it's just not on the website. And yeah, it's very, very soon coming up. I think, Ashley, what you were saying, just to sort of uh, clarify this again for the people that are listening, you guys are both in Southeast Michigan. That's where my in-laws are, too. I have my husband's side of the family is all down there and we're more in the rural parts of Michigan. And we just started hearing from them earlier this week that the schools that the school districts there are making the announcements that they're not even going to start in the classroom. And so I'm just kind of wondering if it's going to trickle all the way over here or if we're going to start anyway. Um, And then, you know, not to rehash all the questions that we already discussed, but um, just the things, Aaron, that you were just mentioning, what happens when the first person gets sick? Both of you have talked about the need or necessity for organization, time management, And it makes it difficult with all those question marks hanging in the air that what, you know, if you want to plan and you want to try to think about the fall and that type of thing, we just don't have the answers. And I always, we have weekly Zoom meetings with one of the um, college campuses I work with. And I think the meeting always ends with, this is a fluid situation. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, it may change next week. It may change tomorrow. And I mean, that's really, that's just them being honest, right? There's really little more that we could kind of ascertain. I think the governor is in the same position as well. Like it is a very changeable situation from day to day. So Oh, it's not good for people that like a little bit of a sense of stability in their lives, you know? Yeah. Or explain to your kids even what is going to happen or what they can expect or. When you were talking, Ashley, about your daughters, kind of you being their everything right now, I sort of thought about how our children are being shaped by this. And I've mentioned this before, but my youngest daughter has seemed to be a lot more fearful in the last few months. She's asked about dying. She's asked about getting sick, just like kind of some dark threads for someone who's seven. And, you know, I try to protect them from this, but they've known the whole time. They know what coronavirus is. And I wondered if your daughters were kind of maybe embodying some of that anxiety and tension. Like they don't want you to leave because they, you know, they want to make sure you're safe. You know, I'm not 
I'm not sure. I definitely thought, especially with my oldest daughter, who does seem to be um, a little bit more anxious about certain things, that she would that she would be pretty fearful. But she is also really interested in medical things and rules and regulations, where um, she's kind of taken it in stride pretty well. The only thing she has said about it that I thought kind of showed that maybe she is nervous about it is that she's asked us not to watch the news when she's around, um, which my husband and I never watch the news anyways. But again, my husband's parents are here and um, his dad, my father-in-law, is one of those people who likes to watch the news and then rehash what was just said to you like over the dinner table um, where he's constantly telling us, you know, where the latest outbreaks have been. And also like your typical old man, he likes to go outside and stand around and watch people (laughs) and kind of like tell us who was wearing a mask and how many people he saw like at someone's house that day and whatever. So my oldest daughter just has asked us like not to really talk about it in that way around her. Other for her. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise she's been, she hasn't really seemed that um, fearful of it. We haven't really talked about dying. Uh, She knows that people are getting sick, but I don't think she has I don't think she's, we've made the connection to her and she hasn't made the connection that people can also die from this, just that people are getting really sick. Uh, so she hasn't been that fearful of it with them. But I was it's, thinking too, what it's going to be like when they have been with me again for what, four or five, however long this is going to go, months, and then all of a sudden not to be with me for hours at a time. I, that's going to be interesting. It's going to be that same sort of like detachment process that you have to do like the first or maybe not, you know, maybe they'll just be excited to be around their friends again or maybe they'll be so um, happy. Other kids in general. Yeah. And just, you know, I was talking to my daughter about it today because she was really excited um, about going back to school. And then, you know, I made the point that she was going to have to wear a mask and she doesn't want to do that. And so she was just like, well, then I'm not going. And um, I was just trying to, you know, remind her of like all the things that she does at school, that there's teachers there that have activities for them. You know, it's like what they're asking um, parents to do as home, you know, as home for homeschooling is also like a combination of a lot of things that other people, you know, of a lot of other, like multiple other people's expertises, if you will. There's an art teacher that has an art project. There's a math teacher that does all the math and they've, you know, they've, they have all these fun experiments to explain the math and the same goes for reading and writing. And, you know, the older they get, the more different sort of specialized teachers they have. And she'll, you know, she'll enjoy that. And I was trying to tell her, you know, like once you get over having to wear the mask and learn all the new rules, it'll probably be worth it to you. But we've had those same conversations, too, that, you know, she's afraid of dying and or I think death more generally. She's been she's been bringing that up a lot. But then you know, and and when they're that age, seven or eight or whatever, they you can they can express that and you can kind of pick up on, you know, what the anxieties are mm-hmm. um, or they can bring them to you. Um, my middle my middle son is he's four and he it's harder to detect like what's going on i think you know at the when this first started we had a lot of issues around potty training um that seemed like they shouldn't really be happening that late in the game 
And then, you know, now it's like you, there's a lot of sort of like particular things where all of a sudden he has gotten very particular about all kinds of things. And I'm and so it's like, is that an expression of an anxiety around what's going on around him? Or as I've mentioned before, he's back in daycare and I don't really parents don't get to go in. So I don't know what it looks like in there. Right. Are those like sort of are they sort of so particular about everything to make sure that they're keeping the kids safe, that that carries over into other areas of his life? And now it's hard to kind of like tell and gauge what's going on. I don't know. So that's I think that's an added challenge to like parenting in a pandemic where it's like, okay, you know what for the younger kids, you have to really be attuned to what's going on with them to see how this is affecting them. So we're kind of at that time where we like to talk about what, if anything, you are reading. I have to be honest, I sort of dropped out of the reading club for a moment. I just feel like there's been so much going on professionally, as you said, Ashley, trying to prepare for this fall semester that is arguably, in my case, going to go on. Uh, It might not be in person. It might be remote, but at any rate, and I'm making some revisions on an essay, which is always fun. I wanted to ask both of you if um, you are reading anything interesting. I know that Judith had been working on a book for a little while, but Ashley, since you're our guest, I wondered if you're reading or have you read anything interesting or has that just been something that's kind of been put away for a bit during this time? No, since we've been home, I've been looking at my bookshelf and trying to find the books that I have up there, but I've never actually read. So I've actually been reading probably more than I usually do. We're also trying to read um, like more physical books in front of our kids because my great. husband and I were both reading a lot on like our Kindles or he reads a lot on his phone. So it just looks like we're playing games or whatever to them. So I'm trying to read the physical books I have on my bookshelf. And one book that I have have had on my bookshelf for, oh man, probably like three or four years now and just never picked up because people kept telling me it was so good that I didn't believe them, was Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel. It says, amazing book. I think you guys should both read it, maybe, depending on how you're feeling right now. It's beautifully written. It is about, it is about, and I did not know this, a pandemic flu that wipes out 99% of our population. A lot of it takes place in Michigan. (laughs) What? I think it maybe even kind of happens around the year 2020 or something. That's eerie. (laughs) It it was very eerie to read it. Um, And when I was not reading it yet, when I always just had it, I knew it was kind of like a post-apocalyptic type book. And in my mind, post-apocalyptic means the road. But I had it, I opened it, I read it, and it's so beautiful. Um, it's it's done really, really well. There's there's some flashbacks and flash forwards. Um, there's a couple of different characters, which I always like. Uh, one of the main characters in her in the post-flu world, she travels with like a Shakespeare company and they're performing Shakespeare throughout uh, I think the west coast of Michigan. Um, and it's just really it's actually a little bit more uplifting and positive than you would think a post-apocalyptic book should be. I had never read anything by by this author, but now I have all her other books um, pretty much highlighted and waiting for them to be available at the library because her writing, I thought, was just really, really beautiful. Uh, she had a couple of lines there that I had to like 
pause and take note of because I just really enjoyed them. And like I said, the stories were very, very human and it wasn't, it wasn't um, like, again, when I think of like the road, it wasn't really the depressing, really super depressing or stark. It was a lot more about, I think, relationships and then just what would happen if, you know, we lose all of these people or we lose civilization. How do we come back from that? How do we start to kind of develop again? So if you're feeling not completely crushed by um, COVID-19, I would definitely recommend it. If you are still scared (laughs) or feeling a little apprehensive, then probably wait until things get a bit better because it was pretty eerie to read, but it was really, really good. I'm looking this up right now, and I think I'm going to add it to my uh, to my read pile or to to read list. That looks that looks great. Thanks for the recommendation. No problem. That's a great thing about being friends with learned scholars, right? You always learn what what to read, and I trust your judgment, so I will check that out as well. I've been on a weird kind of sci-fi tangent anyway, so maybe that's something that I might enjoy. Mm-hmm. Judith, are you pursuing anything new right now? Well, so I did finish um, the tortilla curtain that I was talking about um, a couple weeks ago. I don't know if either of you have read that. Um, it was kind of a struggle to get through, and the ending was just the last two pages were just just horrible um, in terms of what happens. Um and so I, I don't know. I just I had to move on. I so I actually have um, a pro- a little bit of a project going on that I've had going on for um, a while, and I'm not always making progress on it. But I've been trying to read um, the Pulitzer Prize winning novels since all since 2000 or 2001. I think I have a list. Oh. And so after I was done with. Um, the tortilla or tortilla curtain. I picked up um, Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout, I think. Um, but I'm only like ten pages in, so I can't speak to that yet. So I will. Um, I will need to talk about that more next time. But that's where I'm at right now. Awesome. And maybe you could share that list with our listeners. Um, I'd be curious to see maybe a list like that. I like Ashley. I'm just trying to take stock of all the things that I have that I've collected over the years and they've been on the shelf. And I think, okay, now it's time to read that. There are certain ones I continue to avoid, but I think up next, this is a weird choice, but it's Dracula because I have an interest in epistolary (laughs) fiction. And it turns out uh, one of my daughters is really into all this sort of like, I don't know. She likes a kind of macabre and kind of like just these different, I don't want to say darker shows, but I just thought it'd be interesting because I've always been curious about the book. I don't know. I have, I saw someone give a paper on it at a conference and I was like, you know what? I can't believe I've never read that. So I have a lot of books like that too, Ashley, where I'm just like, I should have read that. I read Dracula, I think when I was a teenager. So I don't have a great re- like memory yeah. of it. Edgy, like, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I felt pretty cool walking out of like all the <laughs> books with that, but you did, you wanted to post something to our listeners also as well. Uh, do you have time to run that by our listeners right now? Well, I just wanted to um, get, do another pitch for people to um, email us any comments that they have or let us know what they um, what they think of the podcast so far, what they um, if there's anything that else that they want us to talk about. Um, we can kind of see like where people are listening and we can see that we have listeners um, 
all around the United States and even um, in Europe and other places in the world. And so it would be great to hear from you. Um, you can email us at PhD in parenting podcast at gmail.com. And then if you like what you're hearing, I would also encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and maybe leave a review if you feel like it that helps others find us. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I noticed we even picked up a few Canadian listeners, which is super awesome because they're our neighbors to the north and we're actually not that far away from us in the Detroit area. So that was pretty cool. And I just wanted to thank Ashley so much. I have to say to all our listeners, Judith and Ashley were like essential in helping me keep my sanity throughout my PhD process. I remember one of our grad school teachers kind of saying something like, the people you meet during the PhD program will often be your friends for life. And I truly feel that way. You both were so helpful to me as I plotted through this process. And I was so happy. I too felt like a fish out of water in some of those first classes. And I remember I had to join a class that was already in progress. I think it was a pedagogy course and you both were just like so nice. And I was so relieved because I just, you know, introverted, extrovert, whatever you want to say, extroverted, introvert. I was just so happy to meet you both. So Ashley, thank you so much for coming on. Um, It was really great to hear from you and I hope you can continue to like update us with your progress, like what's happening with your courses this fall. Oh yeah, I would love to. It was great talking to you guys. Great talking to anyone that's not inside this house. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's awesome. Uh, Until next time, thank you so much for listening. 